from Deuteronomy 6.13, a continuation of what Albert had read to us. Fear the Lord your God, it says. Serve him only and take oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is jealous and his anger will burn against you. You He will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land. The Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. That's a subject for another sermon and it needs to be, but not today. The text continues, in the future when your children ask you what is the meaning of the stipulations and decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, you tell them, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and before our eyes the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household but he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as it is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all of this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, we will be righteous. This is the word of the Lord. I chose this long passage because I wanted us to hear that if we are careful to obey and keep this covenant with God and impress this covenant on our children, if we talk to them about it when we're at home and along the road as we walk and when we lie down and when we get up, if we tie them as symbols on our hands and bind them on our foreheads and write them on the door frames of our houses, then we will do well, the text says. Generally, true, we fare better. But it makes me wonder, what are we teaching our children? I suspect it's not that. Judging from the state of things, I'm pretty sure it's not that. I remember watching a young family at a restaurant I was eating in, in Jacksonville for lunch. They came in, sort of sauntered in, heads were down. They found a a table pretty close to me and as soon as they sat down, they all four pulled out their cell phones and began to look at it. The waitress came and asked if what they would like to drink. They never looked up at her. They just muttered, Coke, water with lemon, iced tea, Coke. She handed them. The menu said, I'll be back. They glanced at it, knew what they wanted already. They kept looking at their phones. The food came. 
They began to eat. The kids, 14, I don't know, 12 and 14, step, still looking at their phones as they're eating. The parents put their phones down and started in great anger discussing with each other, not at each other, but with each other, how messed up the government is. And I won't tell you which government they were talking about, but they were very angry about it. And all they could do was talk about how we are all victims to it because they're all cheaters and liars and no good nothings. And it went on and on and on. And it occurred to me that, is this what we are teaching our children? Because this is what they are hearing all over the place. You with me? That's all right, you don't have to be with me. Just, just stay in your seats. <laughs> I've said it before, this is not a political problem. It is a spiritual, religious problem. And I understand the separations clause. I want to emphasize that again. And I am so grateful that no government or religious authority can tell us what we have to do and we have to believe. That's basically why I'm a Presbyterian. I don't trust authority, especially my own. But now in our country with fewer people connected to religious institutions or any institutions, I worry about our future. <laughs> It seems to me that our country has forgotten how to fear the Lord. By fear, I don't mean cowering from God's anger and wrath. I mean, it's more like what real religion is meant to do and be. It's about awe and reverence and worship and obedience and faith and gratitude and and thanksgiving and love of God and neighbor. It means to live our lives with a moral and spiritual calling that God has put us here to represent not me, but God. This comes from our faith that God is the creator of all things, not us, that we are made in the image of God, not God in our image, and that our identity no matter how we choose to identify, is only found in this awareness. We are all children of God. Which means we also have enormous freedom and power and independence at hand. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then a healthy fear of the Lord is needed again as we gain our wisdom of what real independence should look like. What freedom and power are meant to be about, not to benefit ourselves. That's called a contract, where I'm going to work out a contract with somebody, an agreement between two persons or two entities and we're going to all measure up to the terms of the contract. I'm talking about not a contract. I'm talking about a covenant. 
A covenant is that God has covenanted with us to be our God, and we have covenanted back to be God's people. A light on the hill, it has been said. Uh, a, a light to the nations. Not in, a, not in a destiny sense of the way we have been taught it, that there is this manifest destiny that we're called to take over and conquer everything around us. But there is a moral destiny that we are called to follow, being the light of God's presence. I'm not making this up. And, and as I said, you're not going to hear this very many places, but it's on the back of our dollar bill. I, I sense that we've lost this underlying truth. This is what the fear of the Lord is about. On Independence Day, it only becomes more true if anything goes in our economic world of, and moral world of chaos. It is this, without the fear of the Lord, there will be no real meaning in life. And we will find that we are only taking care of ourselves, me, myself, and I. Without the fear of the Lord, we take ourselves too seriously. Without the fear of the Lord, we forget how prone we are to hubris and pride and self-righteousness and that good old word sin, that we're as prone to sin as the sparks are prone to fly upward, the psalm says. When we forget this, our communities erode, our civil and civic-mindedness disappears, and we become self-righteously angry, brutish, and mean-spirited. You with me? Here's the data. In survey of 19, 2019, before the 2020 election, over 42% of almost half of each party view the opposition party as downright evil. That's 48.8 million voters out of 136.7 who believe the other party was in league with the devil. Going a step further, the survey found that nearly one out of five agree that their political adversaries lack the traits to be considered fully human. They behave like animals. 20%. Going still deeper, 20% of Democrats and 18% of Republicans think or thought on occasion that the country would be better off if large members of the opposition died. As recently as 30 years ago, there were a fair number of conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans who held views contrary to the majority of their parties, and they were not elected out. It goes without saying that this kind of cooperation has got to be grounded in something other than partisan politics. And I want to say it is a healthy reverence and respect for the fear of God. God is watching this. That's what the eye is about. And when we know that we are being watched by an authority, we are more moral. And we don't think we're being watched. All kinds of experiments show 
that we are less. If you think you're being watched, you're going to put more money in the offering plate. If you think nobody's watching, you're going to put a whole lot less. That's what that eye is supposed to give us. So what's the solution? We can't put the genie back in the bottle. The dark powers of partisan politics have become as much a pandemic as COVID. By the way, not now because I'm preaching, but later, read the back of your bulletins. It's the prescience, the, the wisdom of the first president, George Washington, when he made a very clear appeal not toward party systems. We're supposed to teach our children this. And when they ask us, what does it mean, mom or dad? What is the meaning of this? What they're asking is, why then are we supposed to do this? Like at Passover, when when someone says, why is this night different than any other night? Why, Why are we, as the United States, called to be different than any other country? And I want to say it is because of this covenant that Israel made with God in Egypt and the remembrance of that when they were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought them out of Egypt toward the promised land and God sent signs and wonders. When we tell them what it means, we say that this is exactly the same story that our founding pilgrims understood their voyage from Europe to America to be all about. They thought, saw, it as, saw it as the second Exodus. Instead of Pharaoh, it was George III, or the Pope. Instead of the Red Sea, it was the Atlantic Ocean. This is so true that on the front of your bulletins, I put the original seal of the United States, designed by Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams, three kind of pretty good guys. And if you'll see on it, it's kind of hard to read, you'll see that the one seal shows Moses standing up over the Red Sea, parting the waters while Pharaoh and his chariot are being drowned in it. And above it, you'll see the presence of God in the cloud and the light touching down Moses' hand. You tell me they didn't see our founding as part of the second exodus away from the tyranny and authority of power. In fact, this is why I'm a Presbyterian, because a case can be made that this is a specifically, particularly Protestant Presbyterian truth. Lost my place. (laughs) The famous critic and historian Tyne, I think I said that right, but Anita will correct me, I'm sure, holding no religious faith himself, declared in 1845 that Calvinists are the true heroes of England. They founded England in spite of the corruption of the Stuarts by the exercise of duty. Tell me if this doesn't sound like Presbyterians. The exercise of duty, the practice of justice by obstinate toil, obstinate's the operative word, vindication of right and resistance to oppression. The conquest of liberty has come by the repression of vice. He said they founded Scotland and they founded the United States. 
The first voice raised in America to fight against Great Britain came from the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians in the Mecklenburg, that's Charlotte, Mecklenburg Declaration. It was the concept of democracy expressed by William Penn who said, we will either be governed by God or we will be ruled by tyrants. Our whole understanding of our liberal democratic republic stands on this covenant of freedom and liberty and checks and balances is on the power of the Constitution, from the power of the Constitution. And it is, I say at heart, a Calvinist theological tradition. I know I'm claiming a lot, which makes me wonder why has our church lost so many members? Because that is a word that we need to celebrate. The underlying foundational story of our country is that God chose a pilgrim people to be a witness to God's liberating grace and that we are called to be a people set apart from the world, not with a manifest destiny, but as I said, a moral one. That's our call. Originally. You can't say that today. I understand. You can't say it today. I can say it here, though. And we as churches need to say it everywhere. And synagogues need to say it everywhere. At least that was the foundation upon which our country was built. I'm not talking about the morality of life or choice. I'm not talking about the morality of guns. Those are all hard issues not on this table right now for me. But I am, I'll be glad to have that conversation with you in private, but not from the pulpit. But I'm making a claim that the way that we participate in those conversations and the way that we connect and relate to each other in those conversations and disagreements is what this covenant is all about. It holds us to a higher accountability than anger and rage and finger pointing and victimhood. Remember Jesus? Remember that story about the woman who was caught in, in adultery and, 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 the, and the religious righteous people came and brought her to Jesus to test him to see what he's going to do because everybody knew that adultery was punishable by stoning. And so they stand her up in front of Jesus, shaming her in front of everybody, which is so like, so like, so many places that are patriarchal. And they shamed her in front of Jesus and they said, she committed adultery. You think she needs to be stoned? Jesus, you remember, doesn't say a word. He writes, and I love to know what he wrote. Nobody he writes in the sand, maybe to catch his breath. And he says, those who are without sin cast the first stone. Those who are without sin cast the first stone. Does that work for political parties? If we claim to be Christian, yes. And inasmuch as we participate in the, in the political realm as Christians, 
we need to carry that light out into the world and be a witness for what it means to be in community and civility with each other, even though we do not agree. By the way, you know that. I'm preaching to the choir. You as a church know that. That's one of the wonderful gifts that I've discovered about this church. Maybe you don't talk about those issues, but nevertheless, you all seem to get along. And I think it's because of just this. You see that there is something greater than politics that we are called to give ourselves over to. Maybe it's because you have a, you have a healthy understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. Amen. Oh,